Well, this is our new Sunday school class, started last week. It's called Two Brief Biographies, like T-O-O. It's very hard to handle somebody's life in 45 minutes, but that's what we're attempting to do, just giving brief um, biographies and some thoughts on some, some significant people in American church history or American culture, or, um, uh, so that's, that's the focus. And today, uh, last, last week, we looked at uh, Cornelius Van Til, a 20th century apologist and uh, founder of Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And today, we're going to go back a couple hundred years to Cotton Mather, so Cotton Mather is the subject, uh, is, is our focus this morning. Anybody heard of Cotton Mather? Anybody know anything about Cotton Mather? Heard the name. It's hard to forget Cotton as the first name. I think that comes from one of his relatives. Uh, has anybody heard of Increase Mather? Who, who do you know better, Increase or Cotton? Cotton, okay. Increase was uh, Cotton Mather's father, and, uh, and so we'll get into this a little bit, but um, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your Lord's Day. Thank you that we can uh, come together to uh, learn, to worship, Father, to uh, rest in you, and we pray that this day would be set aside for your glory that we would honor you in all that we do, say, and think. Uh, Bless us as we look into uh, this this man that you raised up in your church uh, many years ago, Cotton Mather. Lord, help us to uh, draw lessons from this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Cotton Mather was born in February of 1663 in Boston. And uh, for comparison, when was the Plymouth Landing? Americans. Come on, Americans. Know your history. What year was the Plymouth Landing? No. Wrong. 1620. Close. 1620. Right? So we're talking... A generation after the Plymouth Landing, basically, or two generations after the Plymouth Landing. That's when Cotton Mather is born. His, um, he died in 1728, so he lived from 1663 to 1728. For comparison, somebody you may know, Jonathan Edwards, he was born in 1703. So he was born in the middle of Cotton Mather's life and then lived uh, 30 years past Cotton Mather. Uh, So they had some overlap, but Jonathan Edwards would have been the the generation following Cotton Mather. He graduated from Harvard at 15 years old. That's not uncommon at the time to um, have gotten your undergraduate education at uh, younger years, where his father, Increase, would become president of Harvard. So his father became president of Harvard, not while he was there, but shortly after his son was there. 
He becomes president. He, I mean, president, he's like one of the founders of Harvard. This is not, he's getting things going. He's helping to write the charter. He's, um, he's there when there are very few students. And so um, he's involved in all of that, but then becomes president after his son graduates. His, so Cotton's grandfather, Increase's father, was a man named Richard Mather, and he was a nonconformist minister in England. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that he was a nonconformist minister? He, uh, he was not conforming to something, right? And that was the dictates of the civil government and the Anglican church regarding certain aspects of church life, right? So nonconformist ministers refused to um, implement certain things that were legislated. It got them in hot water, right? It got them ejected from the church. And so John Cotton and Richard um, Hookers urged Richard Mather to leave for New England with a group of pilgrims and sail for Bristol, New England, in May of 1635. So this is 15 years after the Plymouth landing. Um, Cotton Mather's grandfather is bringing his family from England to America um, because he, and why is he coming here? Religious freedom, right? He's a nonconformist minister and he's coming to the new land so that he can exercise his conscience in the church, in the new land. And so he worked as a, in, in the Congregationalist Church uh, from 1636 until his death in 1669. That's Richard Mather. Okay, Cotton Mather. Uh, so Increase Mather was also a pastor. Increase Mather was a pastor in Boston at the uh, Boston's North Church. And as was common of the era, Cotton came on as an assistant to his father, which I can't imagine led to any difficulties, right? Family businesses, you know, no problems with, with uh, fathers and sons working together. Um, same thing happened with, with Jonathan Edwards and, and Solomon Stoddard, right? Family uh, members working together. But um, so Cotton Mather comes in as an assistant pastor at Boston's North Church, again, a congregational church. He's not Presbyterian. He's a nonconformist congregationalist, okay? And in 1685, at the age of 22, Cotton Mather takes over the main pastoral duties uh, for that church, becomes the senior pastor as Increase uh, moves out of the pastorate. And so there he is in Boston, that insignificant city in the north, right? Boston, an insignificant city at this time? No. Um, Boston is a very significant city at this time, but you wouldn't uh, imagine how small it is. How, what do you think the population of Boston is in 1680? What? Well, that's a, that's a ridiculously low estimate. 500? 
It's one of the main cities in, the, in New England. 35,000. 35, now that's a more reasonable guess. <laughs> I mean, there are 500 people on the Mayflower. Uh, um, Thirty-five thousand. I mean, that seems like a significant city of the time. There are eleven thousand people in Boston, and yet it's one of the leading cities in New England. Eleven thousand. I mean, what is Spartanburg? Spartanburg County is three hundred thousand. Okay, so eleven thousand in the city of Boston. Now there are millions, right? I don't know how many millions. Um, so, it, but again. This, this is 40, 50 years after Plymouth Landing. This, things are getting off the ground still. He wrote uh, Cotton Mather now. He wrote 450 books and pamphlets. So a writer, prodigious writer. And his most renowned work is a, is a book called Magnalia Christi Americana, which he wrote in 1702, or the subtitle is in English, thankfully, and it's called The Ecclesiastical History of New England from its first planning in 1620 until the year of our Lord, 1698. So he writes a history of the church in America from the Plymouth Landing until uh, when he wrote the book, up to, so about 1620 to 1700, he covers that time period. I haven't read it. I'd like to read it now that I know that it exists and, and see what he says uh, about the church during that time. He was also, as again seems to be common during this era, he was a, I think the word is a polymath. He didn't just stick to theology, he was also a scientist. He, like Jonathan Edwards, whose first published paper was on the life of the spider, um, he wrote, he didn't just write about science, he worked on plant hybridization, which would make sense given that one of the significant struggles during the time would be we need food. And so he's working on plant hybridization and also a smallpox inoculation. And I want, to, I want to camp out here for a little bit because I think it's interesting uh, parallels to all the debates today about um, COVID and vaccination. The smallpox inoculations were wildly um, debated during the time in uh, early America. Uh, before we get there, though, uh, one more point of information. In November 1713, his wife, newborn twins, and two-year-old daughter died from measles. All of them. His family died from measles. His second wife predeceased him, too. And of his 15 children, only two survived him. He put 13 of his children in the ground and two wives. And again, not uncommon uh, for the time. That's just a horrific thought to us. I mean, it's, it's, it's unfathomable, but not uncommon during the time. Uh, so give, give the Lord thanks for his mercy toward us in many respects. Now, smallpox. 
Smallpox was, was a terrible disease. It was devastating. It was uh, killing many people during this time period. It's essentially eradicated now, and, um, but then it, they didn't know what to do with it. 1721 to 22, there's a terrible outbreak of smallpox in Boston. 1721 to 22, remember Cotton Mather is pastoring in Boston. And uh, there's this terrible outbreak of, of smallpox. The population is 11,000. There are 6,000 cases of smallpox. So over half of the population contracts smallpox during that, that year. There are 850 deaths. So you figure out the percentage, 850 out of 1,000 is 8%, something like that, 7% are dying. 7% of the population dying. Now, Cotton, being a scientist and having, having dabbled in this, uh, promoted the use of inoculation and was, in fact, the guy who, who brought it to this country. He brought the process of inoculation to this country um, because he heard that it was being used in Africa. And, uh, and so they brought that technology over here. Um, do also remember that um, Jonathan Edwards has history also with smallpox. And so um, the inoculation controversy is going to go on for decades from here. And what did Jonathan Edwards die from? A smallpox inoculation. Um, right, right after he was elected president of Yale, Jonathan Edwards gets an inoculation, dies. But in Boston, this turns into a huge public debate. Um, here's what Cotton wrote in his diary. The town is become almost an hell upon earth, a city full of lies and murders and blasphemies as far as... Um, uh, Speeches can render it. I, I'm, this is like old English I'm reading from here. Speeches can render it. Satan seems to take a strange possession of it in the epidemic rage against that notable and powerful and successful way of saving the lives of people from the dangers of smallpox. What can I do on this occasion to get the miserable town uh, dispossessed of the evil spirit which has taken such a horrible, horrible possession of it what besides prayer with fasting for it? And so um, the majority of the population feared or condemned inoculation. They just, they were, they were scared of it. They saw that even people, I mean, people who got the inoculation would die from the inoculation. And, um, but many, many were also in favor of it and um, and yet were torn by doubts and religious scruples. Was inoculation a lawful practice? Was, was smallpox a judgment of God uh, sent to punish the people for their sins? Was uh, being inoculated like um, not trusting in the sovereignty of God? Shouldn't you just let the disease come and not try to intercede if God is working his providence out through the... I mean, so there's all these debates that we still debate today, right? Um, and so uh, th this, this was the, the storm that's brewing over this. Um, <clears throat> the opposing factions of this started writing for newspapers, op-eds, right, arguing their cases. It becomes a very politicized issue. 
They ridiculed and abused one another in the papers. Um, a guy named Douglas uh, sent the opening blast in a letter to the Boston News, um, signed W. Philanthropos. Um, he called Boylston, who was an who Boylston was a doctor that Cotton Mather worked with on inoculations. He called Boylston, this doctor, ignorant and illiterate, and accused him of rashness, negligence, and lack of consideration. Boylston's clerical friends came to his defense. Cotton Mather and his father, Increase Mather, and four other ministers, known as the inoculation ministers. <clears throat> repudiated the charges against the, this doctor, Boylston, and called upon the people of Boston to treat one another with decency and charity, meekness and humility. But not a word was said about Boylston's and their persistence in, in the prohibited practice of inoculation. Um, and so... Oh, um, where to take this? I want to get to some other things, and so I have to be choosy. Um, from an article, uh, there's this conclusion. All the while, the epidemic took on greater dimensions. So as this, this debate is going on, the epidemic's getting worse. Um, was this not, people asked themselves, in consequence of Boylston's and Mather's unholy doings? Were these men not a menace to the whole community? Should they not be stopped by force if necessary? Resentment against these two men grew apace. Boylston was uh, insulted on the streets. Uh, even sober, pious people declared that he ought to be treated as a murderer if any of his inoculated patients died. Mather, too, as he noted in his diary, became an object of the populace's fury. The people, he wrote, raved, railed, blasphemed, and behaved not only like idiots, but also like frantics. Conveniently, he attributed their anger to their blinding by Satan, says uh, the writer. The destroyer has taken, this is a quote from Mather, the destroyer has taken a strange possession of the people that he himself could possibly have been in the wrong, apparently never entered his mind. Okay, so thousands of these Bostonians flee for the countryside, right? Get out of the city when there's an epidemic. Um, hundreds are laying suffering in their homes and um, dying. Uh, commerce and business are coming to a standstill in Boston, and uh, everybody's trying to figure out to do. The epidemic continues to spread. Mortalities are increasing. In August, there had been 26 deaths. In September, 101. In October, 400. So it's rapidly increasing. Indignation against Mather turned into rage. On the 14th of November of, uh, it would be 1721, a lighted bomb was thrown into Mather's house, but the fuse came off and it failed to explode. <laughs> oh, a small bomb was hurled through the window of a local Boston reverend named Cotton Mather attached to the explosive, which fortunately did not detonate, was the message, Cotton Mather, you dog, damn you. I'll inoculate I'll inoculate you with this, with a pox on you. I mean, th things never change, right? <laughs> a pox on you. The epidemic begins to diminish in early 1722, 
And Mather and Boylston had been doing inoculations during this time. They did several hundred inoculations. They collect the data from their inoculations, and that was, they say that's the first scientific harvesting of data in the new land, in America, that, this thing. Um, Boylston, who had personally inoculated some 287 people, recorded that of those inoculated, only 2% had died. In comparison, the mortality rate, rate of the naturally occurring disease during that year was 15%. Significant. Significant difference. Risk, certainly, in the inoculation, but significant difference in mortality. And so this was, like I said, this is one of the first, it was the first clinical trial with a control group on record. So that's that. Um, that's the first thing. Second thing I want to mention about Cotton Mather is just briefly, here's what uh, that Magnalia Christi Americana, his history of the church, here's the opening of that book. He says, I write the wonders of the Christian religion flying from the deprivations of Europe to the American strand. And assisted by the holy author of that religion, I do with all conscience of truth required therein by him who is the truth itself report the wonderful displays of his infinite power, wisdom, goodness, and faithfulness wherewith his divine providence hath irradiated an Indian wilderness. So that's the opening paragraph of that history. He's reveling in the fact that God is at work in this land. God is at work among the people, right? And of course, it's, this, is, this is prior to, and he would bleed into the first great awakening, right? Jonathan Edwards is dealing with, with, um, with all of that. Now, what other significant events are going on in the history of Boston and Massachusetts during the 1680s, 90s, early 1700s? Well, there's the revolution that comes in 1770s, right? Yeah, a um, little bit ahead, but it's fomenting. <laughs> the Salem Witch Trials. Cotton Mather is one of the, the preeminent figures in the Salem Witch Trials. Now, what do we know about the Salem Witch Trials? Very little, yeah, that's, that's my answer too. Well, it's very complicated. I think it's very complicated in the end. Um... But the Salem, Salem witch trials are going on, and, and you, you sort of have to come to terms with the fact that Scripture lays out for us that demons are real, okay? And we're, we live in an era where we just discount that, right? We've become completely materialistic and scientific, and, and we discount spiritual realities. And so immediately our disposition toward the Salem witch trials is to say, you know, what a bunch of kooks. Um, on the other hand, if you read the Gospels and you think that they're in the inspired, inerrant word of God and that they're actual history, you know that we can go all through the Gospels and see demons um, throwing people into fire, 
right? And Jesus healing them and them coming out and speaking. Um, we see the, the apostles dealing with demons, right? And, and the demon-possessed people um, racked with pain, their bodies um, crippled because of demons, not because of autoimmune diseases, um, things like that. And so you, we, have to, we have to sort of set aside our modern dispositions, remember that we're Christians who believe that the Word of God is inspired, and then come to the Salem witch trials and try to figure out what's going on. Now... Um, more on that, but Mather writes a book called Memorable Providences Relating to Witchcrafts and Possessions. This book is, uh, is read widely. It's, it's, what, it's, again, one of the things that he's known for. And it, it, account, it goes through this account that he, was, he had firsthand knowledge of, of, of witchcraft and of demon possession. There was, um, and I'll read a bit of it. There dwells at this time in the south part of Boston a sober and pious man whose name is John Goodwin, whose trade is that of a mason, and whose wife to which a good report gives a share with him in all the characters of virtue, has made him the father of six now living children. Of these children, all but the eldest who works with his father at his calling and the youngest who lives yet upon the breast of its mother have labored under the direful effects of a no less palpable than stupendous witchcraft. So there's this family, husband and wife, Four of their children out of the six are being described as being under the, the spell of witchcraft. What does that look like? Well, about midsummer in the year of 1688, the eldest of these children, who is a daughter, saw cause to examine their washerwoman upon their missing of some linen which was feared she had stolen from them. And of what use this linen might be to serve the witchcraft intended, the thief tempter knows. This laundress was the daughter of an ignorant and, some t and scandalous old woman in the neighborhood whose miserable husband before he died had sometimes complained of her that she was undoubtedly a witch and that whenever his head was laid, she would quickly arrive unto the punishments due to such an one this woman in her daughter's defense bestowed very bad language upon the girl that put her to the question, immediately upon which the poor child became variously indisposed in her health and visited with strange fits beyond those that attended an epilepsy or other disease or those that they called the diseases of astonishment. Who knows what that is? It was not long before one of her sisters and two of her brothers were seized in order one after another with effects like those that molested her. Within a few weeks, they were all four tortured everywhere in manners very grievous that it would have broken a heart of stone to see their agonies. Skillful, physician, skillful physicians were consulted for their help, and particularly our worthy and prudent friend, Dr. Thomas Oakes, who found himself so affronted by the distempers of the children 
that he concluded nothing but an hellish witchcraft could be the origin of these maladies. And that which yet more confirmed such apprehension was that for one good while the children were tormented just in the same part of their bodies all at the same time together. And though they saw and heard no one another's complaints, though likewise their pains and spirits were swift like lightning, yet when Suppose the neck or the hand or the back of the one was racked, so it was at that instant with the others too. The variety of their tortures increased continually, and though about nine or ten at night, they always had a release from their miseries and ate and slept all night, for the most part, indifferently well. Yet in the daytime, they were handled with so many sorts of ales that it would require of us almost as much time to relate them all as it did of them to endure them. Sometimes they would be deaf, sometimes dumb, sometimes blind, and often all this at once. One while their tongues would be drawn down their throats, another while they would be pulled out with their chins to a prodigious length. They would have their mouths opened into such a wideness that their jaws went out of joint. And anon they would clap together again with a force like that of a strong spring lock. The same would happen to their shoulder blades and their elbows and hands and wrists and several of their joints. They would at times lie in a benumbed condition and be drawn together as those that are tied neck and heels. And presently be stretched out, yea, drawn backwards to such a degree that it was feared the very skin of their bellies would have cracked. They would make most piteous outcries that they were cut with knives and struck with blows that they could not bear. Their necks would be broken so that their neck bone would seem dissolved into them that felt after it. And yet, on the sudden, it would become again so stiff that there was no stirring of their heads. Yea, their heads would be twisted almost round, and if main force at any time obstructed a dangerous motion which they seemed to be upon, they would roar exceedingly. Thus they lay some weeks most pitiful spectacles." And this while as a, a further demonstration of witchcraft and these horrid effects, when I went to pray by one of them that was very desirous to hear what I said, the child utterly lost her hearing till our prayer was over. So this is the description. This is something that he has firsthand knowledge of. There's this family, the children are being... Uh, afflicted by this witch washerwoman that's living with them and, uh, and doing their work. Um, of course, you may know that the upshot of all of this, in the end, there are many cases like this that went throughout the Boston area and Massachusetts, New England, and many of those, um, those witches were convicted by the civil magistrates and condemned to death right? Hanged, burned, whatever. Um, that, that happens uh, continually. Of course, um, moderns look back at that and say that that was the civil magistrates and the pastors' sexual repression coming out and, and afflicting people with their own problems. and um, They're unwilling to see a spiritual component to this. Um, the doctors examined this washerwoman, and um, the doctors said, no, she's in her right mind. They talked with her, and she would talk normally, and they, they're like, she's in her right mind, so we can't say she's insane. 
And so then the sentence of death was passed upon her. Um, Cotton Mather goes to see her. You know, pastors do that sort of thing, right? When, when somebody's uh, in trouble, they go and visit, like Calvin did with Servetus in Geneva. Calvin went and begged him to repent, right? Everybody accuses Calvin of having executed Servetus, but <laughs> that's not what happened. Servetus was killed by the magistrates, and Calvin pleaded with him to repent. Well, Cotton Mather goes to this washerwoman, while the miserable old woman was under condemnation, I did myself twice give a visit unto her. She never denied the guilt of the witchcraft charged upon her, but she confessed very little about the circumstances of her confederacies with the devil. Only she said that she used to be at meetings, which her prince and four more were present at. As for those four, she told who they were, and for her prince, her account plainly was that he was the devil. She entertained with me, uh, she entertained me with nothing but Irish, which language I had not learned enough to understand without an interpreter. Only one time when I was representing unto her that and how her prince had cheated her, as herself would quickly find, she replied, I think in English and with passion too, if it be so, I am sorry for that. I offered many questions unto her unto which, after long silence, she told me, she would fain give me a full answer, but they would not give her leave. It was demanded, they, who is they? And she returned that they were her spirits or her saints, for they say the same word in Irish signifies both. And at another time, she included her two mistresses, as she called them, in that they, but, in that they, but when it was inquired who those two were, she fell into a rage and would give and would be no more urged. I set before her the necessity and equity of her breaking her covenant with hell and giving herself to the Lord Jesus Christ by an everlasting covenant, to which her answer was that I spoke a very reasonable thing, but she could not do it. I asked her whether she would consent or desire to be prayed for. To that, she said, if prayer would do her any good, she could pray for herself. And when it was again propounded, she said she could not unless her spirit or angels would give her leave. However, against her will, I prayed with her, which, if it were a fault, it was in excess of pity. When I had done, she thanked me with many good words, but I was no sooner out of her sight than she took a stone, a long and slender stone, and with her finger and spittle fell to tormenting it. Though whom or what she meant, I had the mercy never to understand. When this witch was going to her execution, she said the children should not be relieved by her death. Oh man, that's so wicked. Those children that she had tormented, right? They should not be relieved by her death. For others had a hand in it as well as she. She named one among the rest whom it might have been thought natural affection would have advised the concealing of. Okay. Um, one last section. So she's then condemned to death, does not repent. What happens to the children? Okay, she dies. What happens to the children? Um, they were not in a constant torture for some weeks, but, there was, there, but were a little quiet 
unless upon some incidental provocations upon which the devils would handle them like tigers and wound them in a manner very horrible, particularly upon the least reproof, listen to this, particularly upon the least reproof of their parents for any unfit thing they said or did, most grievous, woeful, heartbreaking agonies they would fall into. If any useful thing were to be done to them or by them, they would have all sorts of troubles fall upon them. Right? If they're told to do their chores. It would sometimes cost one of them an hour or two to be undressed in the evening or dressed in the morning. For if anyone went to untie a string or undo a button about them or the contrary, they would be twisted into such postures as made the thing impossible. And at whiles they would be so managed in their beds that no bedclothes could for an hour or two be laid upon them, nor could they go to wash their hands without having them clasped so tightly together there was no doing of it. But when their friends were near tired with waiting, anon they might do what they would unto them. Whatever work they were bid to do, they would be so snapped in the member which was to do it that they with grief still desisted from it. If one ordered them to rub a clean table, they were able to do it without any disturbance. If to rub a dirty table, presently they would with many torments be made incapable. And sometimes though, but seldom, they were kept from eating their meals by having their teeth set when they carried anything unto their mouths. Okay, that's really helpful, isn't it? That's really helpful. I mean, clearly this is a spiritual issue. I mean, clearly this is a spiritual issue that is going on, but it's not demons, it's hardness of heart, which is as terrible or more terrible than demons. Okay? The demons fear God and tremble. Right? A hard-hearted child does not even fear God. Okay? And so... Man, I don't want to discount the fact that, that, that there are times, there are special times, there are times when the work of God is so strong that Satan comes along with his demons and afflicts the church. Right? I think during Jesus' time, when Jesus was on earth, the demons were having a fit. And that's why we see demon possessions in the New Testament. Right? That's why we see them when the church is established. That's why I think we see some activity when religious persecution is fled and the church is set up in, the new, in new England, right? These significant times where the church is about, and, and great awakening is about to come, right? Outpouring of the Spirit. I think, I think we should see in, we, we might see in those time periods an increase in spirit difficult to explain spiritual activity, the work of demons. But you don't see it today. You don't see it today in the ways that it's laid out for us in Scripture. You don't, you, I mean, there may be cases of it. I don't want to discount that. But we, we don't, this is not typical. And why is that? Well, because the devil has iPhones, to keep his people from God's work. 
I mean, the devil doesn't need to use his demons right now. He's got entertainments that have kept all of us numb and stupid and dumb and trapped. Right? Entertainment. I mean, just think of that. Just entertainment has kept us from pursuing God. So, demon possession. I mean, the demons may as well just take a vacation because, because we're wrapped up in other things. And so that's why I think we may not... You know, we may not see it this time. Now, I've visited people in um, psych wards. I've, I've ministered to people who have uh, been diagnosed bipolar. And, of course, you start thinking of demon possession. You start thinking of, of those difficulties. And I think those spiritual realities um, are there. But this, this is not per- pervasive. And so that's one thing I wanted to say. Um, these witch trials, um, these children and their activities, I am more disposed to say that that was bad parenting than witchcraft. That was negligent parenting. That That was the children like children do get away with everything they can and resist their parents at every step, even if it means doing crazy things like, you know, putting their shoulder out of joint. I mean, I think all of us could give examples of when our children did this and we as parents let them get away with it. And then they just got into a pattern of it because they saw it worked. Right? No, I'm not going to do that. Shut up, mom. That's a spiritual problem. That's a spiritual issue. These parents uh, were not disciplining their children. And the children, therefore, were falling under the condemnation of the devil. Right? By resisting authority, by resisting God. And, of course, there's always the power of copycatting. One child does one thing, the other children pick up really quick, and then the family down the street picks up really quick from those children. Copycatting, right? copycatting all over the place. And I think um, that's why we see, uh, that's why um, you see violence break out in in, uh, groups, right? Mass shootings. There's a lot of copycatting going on. People see that and they think it's a psychological solution for their pain and they'll go and do it, right? And so I think there's a lot of copycatting that went on during this time. And um, I think when, when, you know, that paragraph written here about the, the parents, I think Cotton Mather is, is trying to do his diligence as a pastor and figuring out, okay, what is the cause of this, this rebellion? What is the cause of this affliction? What is the cause of their pain? And he's caught between, well, these rotten children and demon possession. What do you think? Rebellion is as, rebellion against God is as divination, right? It says in First Samuel. Yep. Which means that rebellion is just as bad as witchcraft. Yeah, I mean the kids need the kids needed the right. What, what is the solution to rebellion in Scripture for children? It is the discipline of children, right? Um, 
that is laid out to us. Now, there were children, we see, that were afflicted by demons, right? And what do we do with that? No idea. No idea. But I know people who have had children who are afflicted and they've consulted with, with uh, Christian, um, Christians who, who pray and fast and oppose demons and have been helped. Their children have been helped in these situations, right? After they had seen doctor after doctor after doctor after doctor after pastor after counseling session after this, it's like finally Reformed Christians get to the point where they believe that, oh, there could be some spiritual you know, realities going on here that we need to take care of, and they availed themselves of that, and it was helpful to their child. So again, I, I, I may sound like I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth, but that's very intentional. Did you have your... Do you have your hand up? That's right. Into hysteria. That's right. Yeah, that, that was going on. And so, again, the, uh, taking, taking the testimony of, cho- of rebellious children as sort of um, with unconfirmed, you know, is, is dangerous territory. Sarah? And it, right, and, and remember, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. You know, if you get all worked up about demons, chill out. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. If you're a child of God, demons won't possess you. The Holy Spirit doesn't vacate his space so that demons may come in. Okay? Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. That, that's, your, that's your calling. And so... Um, Trust the Lord. Live by faith. Correct me if I'm wrong, but in the, in the passages in the Bible where every one of those men that had been demon-possessed had tasted the Lord, is there not a follow-up action from James Jacob to Lord? Not always. I mean, it happens, I mean, but not always, no. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. Right. Of course. And you would hope that Cotton Mather would do his due diligence there and, and continue with these children. But again, Cotton Mather is caught in this hard place where this is all being debated publicly. Like, this is craziness, this is just people being vindictive toward another, or this is witchcraft. And he, here he is as a pastor in the middle of this, trying to navigate those questions, which are incredibly complicated. You take the study of Scripture and, and faith to approach. And so, um, Bob, you had your hand up. This is the last word, we've got to wrap it up. Yes. And if we see the fall of man as a rebellion, and that we're all trying to put it all together since then, um, I think there's a little, we can kind of see more of both sides if we do it that way. Mm. And we're the church. Yep. That's my point. Yep. Yep. Well, that's Cotton Mather. That's a way too brief introduction to Cotton Mather, but now you have a basis upon which to do your own research. So um, look into things that struck you. Let's, uh, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that uh, in him he makes all things new. And uh, Lord, that, uh, that the, the demons obey you. And Father, we pray that um, we pray that we would be wise, and that we would, uh, in a sense, uh, announce no railing judgment um, because we respect the demons, and yet, on the other hand, Father, may we believe that they flee from us when we um, resist them. Father, thank you for this Holy Spirit. Thank you for the power that you've given to us uh, in him, and I pray that you would uh, bless us now as we worship you May we do so in spirit and in truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.